it's not just something that happens like a progressive march over time. It also can sort of switch up acutely. If you exercise, you're acutely more insulin resistant. If you lose sleep, you're acutely more insulin resistant. If you're stressed, that can promote um, cortisol, which pushes glucose out into the bloodstream. So these other factors, like are you eating cashews when you're sleep deprived, stressed and haven't worked out (laughs) versus well slept, worked out and not stressed, it actually can be a profoundly different response. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. Hello, hello, Bettys, and welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Well, do I have a treat for you today? I am speaking to Dr. Casey Means, and we are talking all about glucose control, continuous glucose monitors, insulin, and all of the things surrounding metabolic health. Now, Dr. Casey Means is a Stanford-trained physician. She is the chief medical officer and co-founder of the metabolic health company Levels, and she is the associate editor of the International Journal of Disease Reversal and Prevention. Dr. Means has been featured in the New York Times, Men's Health, Forbes, Business Insider, TechCrunch, Entrepreneur Magazine, The Hill, Metabolism, Endocrine Today. The list goes on. She is a well-published doctor and she has held past research positions at the NIH, the Stanford School of Medicine and NYU, New York University. And today, as I hinted to, we are talking all about glucose and glucose metabolism. So we start off the conversation speaking about uh, Casey's journey into metabolic health. Uh, She didn't start off that way, really started off as a surgeon and was noticing the disparity between surgery and the outcomes of her patients and focusing on root cause medicine, like getting glucose and other inflammatory markers under control. So we talk about her history and then we get into what the glucose response looks like, what an ideal glucose response looks like. We talk about the difference between the glycemic index of foods, the glycemic variability and glycemic load of foods, because these terms are often conflated and we get into some of the influences, things that influence the glucose response. So we talk about food, OBS, right? Of course, we're going to talk about the food because that's a really big influencer on the glucose response. But we get into some interesting 
strategies like nutrient timing, the addition of fiber, the addition of water and timing your carbohydrates. So not to say, and I won't spoil it for you, but not to say that carbs should never be eaten, but there is a certain way, a certain pattern that is emerging around how to eat your carbohydrates to control your glucose response. We also talk about the stress response. We talk about acute stress, chronic low grade stress and inflammation. Um, We talk about resistance training. We talk about sleep deprivation, all of the things that you might expect, some of the usual suspects when we're talking about metabolic health. And then we get into a conversation around insulin. And one of the things that I find really, really fascinating about CGMs or continuous glucose monitors is the idea that some people will often confuse their glucose levels for healthy insulin levels. So we talk a little bit about a way to, is there a way to estimate average insulin um, that a you know non-diabetic patient might make over the course of the day based on his or her glucose data points. We talk about the predictive value of continuous glucose monitoring in the context of Alzheimer's, dementia, uh, the hormonal shift that women experience in and beyond menopause. And of course, we talk about reproductive health, pregnancy, and much more. And without further ado, please enjoy my very juicy, enlightening conversation with Dr. Casey Means. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause. And mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause, and there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam minerals just taste like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. All right, Dr. Casey Means, I am just delighted to welcome you to the Better with Dr. Stephanie podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I was just enjoying our pre-chat so much that uh, I figured that we might as well get started and get some of this juicy stuff in the conversation uh, itself, because we were just talking about glucose and CGMs and all of that good stuff. And that's what we're going to be talking about today with um, my audience, my Bettys. Um, we are going to be talking about the what a continuous glucose monitoring is, uh, what the predictive value of it is, what it can tell us about our health. But before we get into glucose and insulin and all of the, all of all the metabolic uh, juiciness, I wanted to start off by getting to know you a little better because, you know, in doing my research, as I was saying to you in the pre-chat, you know, in doing my research on you, very, um, uh, prestigious, um, you know, graduated from very prestigious school, doing surgery, head and neck. Um, and then you find yourself in, you know, a surgeon finds herself in being a metabolic health expert and a co-founder of a CGM company. So I would just love for you to lay the groundwork, give us a little history in terms of how you came to understand and to pursue what you now know, which is metabolic health and excellence. 
Sure, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so I had kind of a circuitous route to being a health tech entrepreneur and really focusing on metabolic health. As you mentioned, I started in surgery. I was uh, I trained at Stanford and then I did a head and neck surgery uh, residency. And in my training, I was treating a lot of conditions that are fundamentally inflammatory in nature. So things like sinusitis, thyroiditis, laryngitis, and all these itises, that's the suffix in medicine that means inflammation. So a lot of these inflammatory disorders and how we conventionally treat these is often we'll give antibiotics, but it's a lot of steroids and steroids are medications that really tamp down the immune system. And it's incredible how many steroids we use. We can give them orally, IV, inhaled, uh, topical. It's, there's just so many ways to, to settle down the immune system. And it, it, and then when those ultimately fail, we often go to the operating room and we do something highly morbid. We, we cut into someone's body and it's often to suck out like pus inflammatory infiltrate and things like that, and kind of change the plumbing. But what struck me is that none of what we were doing with the drugs or with the surgery was actually getting at the fundamental problem of what is causing inflammation? What is the trigger? Why are people's immune systems on high alert? Inflammation is ultimately a way the body's responding to a perceived threat. So what is that threat? And furthermore, why in our modern you know, Western um, medical system are the majority of conditions that we're facing aside from just the head and neck, the ear, nose, and throat also inflammatory in nature? So we now know that obesity, diabetes, even dementia, heart disease, these are also conditions where there's this inflammation. So really got me to step back and say like, what's going on here? What's this trigger? And we know that our modern lifestyle is a huge trigger of inflammation. Almost everything we're doing in the lifestyle and dietary realm can be sort of considered this unnatural threat to the body from the industrial hyper-processed foods that we're eating, these sort of franken foods that our body has no idea what to do with, the massive amounts of sugar in our diet that our, our bodies were never meant to be exposed to. You know, we're eating about 152 pounds of sugar, refined sugar per person per year. We probably shouldn't be eating even one. And so that's a that's a threat signal to the body. We've got sleep deprivation. We've got chronic low-grade stress. We're not moving our bodies a lot. All of these things translate into this reality in our body of, you know, what's going on? There's some problem here. It's not normal. And that can, that can breed inflammation. So that was kind of an interesting process for me to say, why are, why are we just going to the end of the line with these really morbid intensive interventions when we could maybe be intervening early, intervening earlier. And I became really focused on, on that sugar piece because high blood sugar and or eating sugar is a key driver of chronic inflammation in the body. And it's something we have a lot of control over. And I think something that has become so normalized in our culture that we don't even realize that it's in everything. There's like 250 names for sugar in the food that we're eating. And there's a lot of misinformation out there about whether it's, you know, it's okay to be eating and what it's actually doing to our bodies. And so became really focused on, you know, how do we help people make better choices around this to ultimately hopefully create conditions in the body that are healthier and that are better. So that was a big part of it. And the second part was really just this kind of wake up call I had about five years into my surgical training where I was kind of looking at the epidemiology of American health. And I was realizing, okay, we're spending $4 trillion on healthcare costs in the United States per year, more than any other country in the world by a huge margin. And our life expectancy is going down. And we are, by all accounts, as a population, getting sicker, fatter, and more depressed. Those three things are facts. So something is not working. We're paying more every year. We're doing worse. 
and we're actually getting worse year by year. We got, if as a doctor, how could you not step back and say, what is wrong here? And it's really hard to move forward when you've kind of made that connection and, and need to just step back and focus on the systems issues. And the reality is, is that health does not come from a medication. Health does not even come from a doctor's visit. Health comes from the hundreds of micro decisions we make every single day. That's how you generate health. That's how you build a body. That's how you create cellular function that ultimately leads to health. And so that's the core issue in why we're failing as an American healthcare system is because we don't focus at all on making the smart, personalized daily decisions that build health. We focus a lot on the reactive you know, treatment, going to the doctor's office, getting a pill, getting a surgery, none of which actually breeds health. It manages disease. So long story short, my core focus became how as a medical community, as a physician, do I empower individuals with the information they need to make smart, personalized, sustainable decisions day in and day out about the lifestyle and dietary factors that do generate health. And that's where Levels, my company emerged from, which is the system that allows people to know exactly how every bite they're taking is affecting their blood sugar levels in real time, and then helps you move towards understanding how to improve that response. So we want glucose blood sugar to be more stable and gently rolling throughout the day. We don't want huge spikes and dips. And so for the first time, we have the power to see that in real time with what we're eating and then, and then learn to make choices that keep the blood sugar more stable. So that's sort of the past 10 years of my life in, in a nutshell. I have to say that your conclusion is a profound one because, you know, my training, I'm, I'm trained as a chiropractor. So we are considered generally as alternative healthcare providers, but we get like nutrition is part of the core curriculum in terms of, so we have always, you know, the word health nut, I was told, I don't know if this is true or not, but the word health nut comes from sort of other, you know, people calling chiropractors health nuts because we were talking about this crazy thing called nutrition. And when we look at, you know, the, the curriculum, and this was, you know, we were talking about Dr. Robert Lustig in the pre-chat, you know, when we look at the curriculum of medical doctors, they don't get a lot of nutrition. They are, there is this dogmatic paradigm where they are taught that the intervention like the surgery or the medicine is going to fix them. And I think that what you said around going to the doctor or, you know, getting the prescription is not healthcare promotion. It's not health promotion and it, it's a way to manage symptoms perhaps, or it's a way to delegate your health to another person or system. And I think that, um, in order for you, a surgeon, so you've not just done, you know, a medical degree, you've gone on to do residency and specialized training to come to that kind of conclusion in the face of very much consensus medicine to, to the exact opposite um, is, is quite incredible. And I just want to make sure that we honor that because, you know, sometimes, you know, I think as naturopaths and osteopaths and chiropractors, we're like, God, is like, is no one else seeing this? And then there's, you know, you know, knights in like yourself in shining armor, if you will, they're like, oh my gosh, someone else who agrees with us. This is so wonderful. So I think that that's really, really awesome. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. I blame all the, 
you know, the, the incredible physician authors who, you know, write all these books that we love. Like we were just talking about Robert Lustig who wrote metabolical and hacking the American mind and fat chance and people like Mark Hyman, who's written 14 books and Sarah Gottfried and, um, Ben Bickman and all these people who, who stepped back, looked at things critically and then wrote about it. And I, you know, I had those little earbuds in my, and I was listening to those when I was in residency and, 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 you know, slowly, but surely you kind of wake up to exactly what you're talking about, that we're not actually promoting health. We're just managing disease. And that's, that's a big problem. And we are incentivized to treat disease, not to promote health. And so, uh, I'm just so grateful for the people who have you know, come before all of it, you know, and just like put this down on paper because it really makes the difference. Once you hear that stuff, it's hard to unhear it. And it's hard to keep going to work every day doing the same thing. So I'm just eternally indebted to that, to that, you know, those, those people. So let's talk a little bit about what continuous glucose monitoring is, because we're going to have a discussion around glucose today. We're going to have a discussion around insulin. And of course, in, you'll all, in, the, in the course of this conversation, we might abbreviate, we might say something like CGM. So I want to make sure that my Bettys know what CGM is, continuous glucose monitoring, what it is essentially doing, and talk a little bit about levels and how uh, and what the company is doing around glucose monitoring. Fantastic. Yeah. So maybe starting with some definitions. Yeah. Let's start with some definitions. Yeah. Perfect. So CGM is a continuous glucose monitor. So this is a small wearable device. That's the size of two quarters stacked on top of each other. And you actually stick it on the back of your arm and it's got a tiny little four millimeter probe that goes under the skin and it's measuring your blood sugar levels 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And you stick this little sensor on for two weeks. Um, and every 15 minutes, it's actually just doing this little lab test under the skin and determining your glucose levels and sending that information to your smartphone for you to get that. Um, so previously people were pricking their fingers and getting a drop of blood and using that to kind of get a single time point measurement of blood sugar. But that, you know, that's sort of like the photograph version of the data. This is the movie version. This is, you know, all day. You can actually see how things are rising in response to food, how things are rising in response to stress um, and, and start making those insights about, Oh, you know, when I had this, high carb meal all by itself, I had a really big glucose elevation, but when I put it with some fat and protein and fiber, it was actually a lot more stable. Hmm. Maybe I should do that more moving forward. So that's what CGM is. Um, and probably a term we're going to be saying a lot during this, this episode, but, um, yeah, happy to jump into, you know, more about, continuous glucose monitoring or wherever, you, wherever you'd like to go. Yeah, I think that that's a great starting point. And we can get into what glucose is now, because once we understand CGM and what it's doing, of course, now the next logical place for that is, okay, so continuous glucose monitoring, why do I care about glucose? And, you know, if you've listened to previous podcasts, you know, glucose is the molecule of life, right? It is the primary substrate for every single cell in our body. Of course, we've talked about alternate fuels like ketone bodies and things like that, but every single cell in the body has either the ability to use glucose and there's some really special organs that make it. (laughs) So, um, let's, let's talk about 
talk to me about the chain of events or maybe just the mechanistic um, chain of events that happens when we ingest a carbohydrate uh, and to some extent protein as well. We know that when we have protein, there's a bit of an insulinergic spike. But what happens when we eat these, um, you know, exogenous dietary foods? And then what happens uh, in terms of the, what are some of the hormones that are released? What happens in the body? And what are some of the, and maybe you can tie into that, you know, if, and maybe this is a second question, but what are some of the, um, averages or the ranges that you would like to see those hormones and those glucose levels fall in between? Yes. Yes. So basically when you eat dietary carbohydrates, you digest them and they ultimately are going to break down into glucose in the bloodstream and glucose goes into the bloodstream. And then the body basically responds by releasing this hormone called insulin. One of the most important hormones in the body that really is relevant to every single person, no matter what their, their health goes, goals are. Um, it's an incredible hormone. Almost every single cell in the entire body, 30 trillion of them have insulin receptors. So it has a lot of functions. And the purpose of insulin is to help cells take up that glucose. And what glucose is, what this blood sugar is, is it's the fundamental metabolic substrate in our body. And what that means is that it is a a substrate that can be transformed into energy in our cells that we can actually use to power our cells. The key thing about metabolism is that every single one of our 30 trillion cells in the body, and that's just human cells. We have about, I think, I think a hundred trillion bacterial cells in our body, but human cells. So um, this is the fundamental thing about metabolism. Every single one of those 30 trillion cells needs energy to function, to do anything, to live, to do any of the functions they're supposed to do. If it's a brain cell, it needs energy to do brain stuff. If it's an ovary cell, it needs energy to do ovary stuff. But you can't just use the glucose. You have to convert it to energy that we can use, a currency we can use, which is generally called ATP. So this glucose has to get into the cell, be converted to something that is a currency we can use. And when that process is going well and it's efficient and we're converting glucose properly to energy that we can use and there's not a ton of excess, we're not creating harmful byproducts, that's a well-functioning metabolism. Our cells are functioning properly. When this process is not working well and we can't get the energy we need in the cells properly or we're gumming up the cells with this excess byproduct of energy creation, we get dysfunction. We get cellular dysfunction. The cells don't work properly. And when cells don't work properly, tissues don't work properly, organs don't work properly. That's where symptoms arise. And so the reason that blood sugar and problems with blood sugar and problems with metabolism underlie almost every chronic condition we're seeing in our country, literally the nine of the 10 leading causes of death in the United States are related to dysfunctional blood sugar in some way. Um, is because this is a core pathway. It's a pathway relevant to every cell type. And really where this problem, this fundamental core problem is showing up is where symptoms you know, might emerge. If it's happening again in the ovary, it might look like polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is the leading cause of infertility in the United States, which is fundamentally a glucose problem in the ovary. If it's happening in the brain, it might look like dementia. If it's happening in the heart, it might look like heart disease. So how do we get those problems? Well, this is the interesting thing. When we eat too much glucose, you know, day in and day out, we're constantly sort of spiking our glucose because we're eating too many dietary carbohydrates. The body's tasked with producing 
tons and tons of insulin to get all that glucose out of the bloodstream into the cells. And what happens over time is that the cells get overwhelmed. They can't process all this glucose. And so the cells actually say, stop, like, I don't want to get more of this into the cell. So the cells become resistant to that insulin signal. So now the bodies actually have to push out more insulin to try and drive that glucose into the cells. And this is where the, 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 you know, wheels start coming off the bus and things are problematic. Now you've got this block to both to insulin glucose can't get into the cells as efficiently glucose starts to rise in the blood. And that whole energy process, it's like, there's too much of this energy substrate, but we're not using it properly. And that's a real problem. This is where metabolic dysfunction starts arising. And this is really the path towards diabetes um, and these other related conditions. The interesting thing is, you know, for many people, weight is an issue. And we've got 72% of Americans who are overweight and obese. Well, a really interesting thing about insulin is that aside from its function of essentially um, pulling glucose out of the bloodstream into the cells, its other function is to tell the body not to burn fat for energy because fat is the other way that we can generate energy in the body. It's really, we have the option of use glucose or use fat, but when glucose is around, we use that preferentially because that insulin's around saying don't use fat. So you can imagine you get into this situation where the, you've been eating a lot of carbs, which is normal in the American diet. The vast majority of our calories come from refined carbohydrates. These days, you're getting all these glucose spikes. You're getting all these insulin spikes. You start generating that insulin resistance. The body's then pumping out more insulin to try and overcome that. Now you've got high insulin levels at baseline. And what are you not going to do in that situation? Burn really any fat. So it's just this really interesting cycle that ultimately gets us really dependent um, in these high insulin states, getting dependent on burning carbohydrates for fuel. And we kind of become these like metabolic carb addicts, but we're not even doing a good job of it because we become insulin resistant. So um, it's just this really fascinating um, cycle. And this is why focusing on our blood sugar levels and making sure that we're keeping our blood sugar levels more stable over time. And therefore ideally keeping our insulin levels more stable over time means that we become, we stay sensitive to the signal. And when we do have carbs in the body, we're able to process them, convert them to energy, you know, move it through the system. And when we don't have a lot of glucose around our insulin levels are nice and low and we can tap into fat burning for energy. And that's that beautiful state of metabolic flexibility but it requires that we don't overload the system day in and day out with these dietary carbohydrates that ultimately will make us um, insulin resistant. So that's kind of the big picture around those things and why there's just a lot of value to zeroing in more on an understanding how our food is affecting our blood sugar levels. Absolutely. And I want to talk about, I'm going to just shelf that just for a minute, because I definitely want to get into how food specifically, and I can share a little bit about what I've learned from wearing um, CGM but before, before we get there, I think it's interesting to define some goalposts for us, meaning that, you know, if we were to, we, if we were to think about what are, if we were to look over a 24 hour period, is there, you know, a mean fasting 24 hour glucose that we might look to, uh, you know, to hit or to, you know, to get within uh, reach or is there, um, you know, a daily, uh, or a range like a postprandial or, you know, after you eat something, is there a postprandial range, ideal range that you'd like to, is it, you know, 140 milligrams per decimal? 
liter or less, or, you know, and, and there's a lot of, um, sort of delineation around HbA1c levels and fasting glucose levels and postprandial levels being a hundred, you know, at the two hour mark being under 140 milligrams per, per deciliter. Is that in terms of your research and in terms of the data that you, that you've accrued at levels, are there ranges that you like to see over a 24, is there a mean 24 hour level of glucose, fasting glucose that you like to see in a range? Mm. And the reality is, is that there's unfortunately not standardized ranges that have been put forth by the governing bodies at these. So like the American Diabetic Association or the International Diabetes Federation, IDF. And the reason for that is twofold. One is that we haven't had access to continuous glucose monitors for very long. And so there hasn't been as much research really characterizing these 24-hour trends. And secondly, unfortunately, we don't do a really good job of studying healthy people in our biomedical research often, because again, it's this bias towards focusing really only on when disease emerges and less on understanding like how to keep people healthy. And so there's very few studies of basically healthy individuals wearing continuous glucose monitors and understanding their blood levels, but there are about six or seven that have done that. And so I can speak to those. So that's where they've taken healthy populations, put CGMs on them, and just kind of looked at what happens with their glucose levels. And what you find is that really for about 90 to 95% of a 24 hour period, people are staying within a range of about 70 to 120 milligrams per deciliter of glucose. Um, some of the studies that have slightly less healthy or older populations show that it's more between 70 and 140. But the main takeaway is that it's very unusual if you are a non-diabetic individual um, to, to go outside of that 70 to 120 or 70 to 140 range, depending on the study. Um, that is, you know, an interesting thing to know because it's actually different than what we would expect from some of the more standardized diagnostic criteria. So one of the standardized ways to determine whether you're non-diabetic, pre-diabetic or diabetic is an oral glucose tolerance test. And that's where you're basically asked to chug 75 grams of this glucose drink, which is like the grossest thing. It's this horrible orange drink. And then they measure your glucose at basically an hour or two hours, sometimes three hours. And look what happens to your glucose. And basically if your your glucose is going to go up, obviously, but if you're below 140 milligrams per deciliter at two hours, you're considered non-diabetic. And I would say that's like a pretty lenient test because based on this other research in non-diabetic individuals, we should probably never be going above 140. So to be just under 140 at two hours, that means you've been elevated above that for two hours. So um, I think we probably need to be looking at like narrower and tighter ranges to really understand true metabolic health, not just absence of disease. So when you also look at these studies, they are looking at 24-hour average glucose levels. And in these studies, they range from about 99 to like 105 are, are, and there's a great blog post I've written on the, actually the levels blog that summarizes a lot of this data, but 24 av hour average glucose levels and healthy people tend to be around 99 to 105 in these studies. Um, and then if you look at research on optimal fasting glucose levels, so that's your levels first thing in the morning after not having eaten for about eight hours. If we just look at the standard criteria, under 100 is considered normal non-diabetic. You wake up, your blood sugar is under 100, you're considered to be not pre-diabetic, not diabetic, healthy. But if you really look deeply in the research, it actually seems like a value between 72 and 85 is a lot better for health 
than if you're in that upper range, like 85 to 100, which is still considered normal by standard criteria. But if we're looking at like future outcomes, like heart disease, or even developing diabetes or obesity or things like that, a low normal, so 72 to 85 seems to be quite a bit healthier. So long story short, um, if you're wearing a CGM, probably shooting to stay the vast majority of the time between 70 and 120, shooting for an average kind of around 100, I think probably it could be tighter than that. My average tends to be around 88 or so throughout the day. Um, and then shooting for a morning glucose between about 72 and 85. And then after meals, um, I would recommend, and I know a number of the physicians on our advisory board, um, you know, sort of agree with this based on their professional research and their research-based opinion is not to really go above 20 to 30 points after a meal. So you eat your meal and then you're going to go up and come down. You don't really want that spike to be more than 30 milligrams per deciliter above your baseline. And when I'm really dialed in and cooking at home, I can easily get it to 10 to 15 as a spike. And that, that could be a really big hearty meal. But if I'm really focusing on keeping um, the refined carbs down and all of that, I can get it to about 10 to 15. So those would kind of be the the parameters I'd shoot for, um, less than 30 after a meal. Um, yeah. Uh, staying under 120 most of the day and a, a fasting glucose around 72 to 85. Well said. And I think that you can really make this argument for many of the standard, you know, you can look at someone's resting heart rate and they say, well, 60 to hundred beats per right. minute. And it's like, there's a, va- there's a 40% difference between someone who has a heart rate of 60 and someone who has a heart rate of a hundred. And to your, to your point, you know, someone who has a fasting glucose of let's call 85 milligrams per deciliter in the morning versus someone who has 110 or hundred, there's a, there's a different there's something going on there that we really want to be um, exploring. So I think that even when you're, you know, looking at these sort of standard ranges, or I should say under a hundred, right? Cause they say under a hundred milligrams per deciliter, you're fine. But someone who has 85 versus someone who has a hundred, you know, very different. It's very different. And, and you when can, you actually look at the curves, like the, the curves of risk, um, which are in a number of studies, it's a, it's an almost, you start getting that exponential increase in risk for future disease well before you reach a hundred. And so you don't want to be on that upswing. You know, you want to be at that bottom, that bottom portion of the graph. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the distinction between the glycemic index of foods. Cause as people are hearing you, they're going to say, okay, so, um, watermelon that probably has a really, you know, that's probably something that has, it's all sugar. So we want to talk about the difference between, you know, glycemic index, glycemic load, glycemic variability. Can you parse, like separate these a little bit for us so we can understand them a little bit better as we're talking about some of the things that influence our glucose? Absolutely. So these are such important terms to parse out because basically we have the glycemic index is this scale that was created that, that kind of said, okay, what is going to happen to blood sugar when someone eats 50 grams of a carbohydrate of a 50 grams of carbohydrates of a particular food. Um, and you know, watermelon, like you mentioned, like it's a sweet food, but to actually eat 50 grams of sugar of watermelon, you'd have to eat a lot of watermelon. That's like a big, big bowl. (laughs) It's a big meal. (laughs) Right. Exactly. So the glycemic, yeah, so exactly. So the glycemic index of that, if you truly ate 50 grams worth of carbohydrates of watermelon, yes, it would spike your glucose quite a bit. Um, but the glycemic load of it is going to be not quite as much because you're, you're never going to eat that much of that. The key thing 
to, to sort of differentiate between these the glycemic and, and glycemic load and glycemic variability is the fact that glycemic variability is actually what's happening to your blood sugar in response to eating in terms of how much your glucose is going up and down. So you can imagine um, like a, a, just a graph of your glucose over 24 hours. It's going to go up after meals. It might go up in response to stress, and then it's going to come back down. That's your body, you know, coming back into homeostasis after each of these, these triggers, whether it's food or stress or whatever. And, and that amount of up and down, whether it's big spikes and big valleys versus gentle rolling Hills, that's glycemic variability. High glycemic variability are the big spikes and the big dips low glycemic variability is more the gentle rolling hills and, or just like a flat glucose line. We want low glycemic variability. We know based on the research that that is associated with better health. And as you get more along the metabolic dysfunction spectrum. So as we get more overweight and obese, as we move from normal to prediabetes to diabetes, we know that glycemic variability increases in relation to that. So it's really an amazing marker of where you are on the metabolic spectrum, how much glycemic variability you're displaying day to day. So it's kind of a two-way street. The more glycemic variability that we sort of generate in ourselves by what we're eating, the more we're going to drive these processes like insulin resistance, that's going to lead to moving towards prediabetes and, and being overweight, but then convert or, um, additionally, when we get into those states, we're more likely to just have glycemic variability at baseline, meaning that when you're pre-diabetic or diabetic, you're going to respond in a more extreme way in terms of a blood sugar rise to the same food that you might've eaten when you were non-diabetic, it's going to have a bigger spike. So it's kind of this two-way street and unfortunately like a vicious cycle. So the beauty is, is that what we can do by testing our blood sugar with a continuous glucose monitor is have this granular sense of what's going on with our glycemic variability day to day, and then work to decrease it learn what choices we're making every day, whether it's walking after a meal or um, adding fat, protein, and fiber to a carb source or not eating late at night. All of these things might decrease that overall spikiness of the 24-hour curve, and we reduce that glycemic variability, and that's basically positive. So, um, so I would argue that we really can totally move away from the glycemic index and glycemic load conversation into what is really becoming more of a personalized glycemic index, which is understanding your glycemic variability in response to food. And that's something we have the power to do now, which we never had the power to do before. And one just small final point is that the glycemic index chart makes the impression that everyone is going to respond the same way to 50 grams of a particular carbohydrate that you and I could both eat 50 grams of carbs with carrots and have the exact same glucose response. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. Element T also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. But we actually know now that that's not true. 
each person responds very differently to the exact same carb source. And a lot of this came out of an amazing research paper about five years ago out of a lab in Israel called the Weissman Institute. And it was called personalized nutrition by prediction of glycemic responses. And they took 800 people all wearing a continuous glucose monitor, gave them the same meals, standardized meals. And based on that glycemic index chart, you'd assume all their glucose, their blood glucose would rise the exact same amount because that's, that's what the chart says. There's an inherent property of the food in terms of how it rise, raises glucose. That's not at all what happened. People were all across the board from no spike to a huge spike to the same meal. And so this was, and some people actually responded in opposite ways. So you could give someone a cookie and a banana and they might have a spike to the banana and no spike to the cookie. And person B has a spike to the cookie and no spike to the banana. It's like, this totally changes the way we in, would interpret a glycemic index chart. Um, you, so really we probably each need our own for ourselves. And some of the factors that went into those different responses were things like microbiome composition, how your bacteria in your body are actually processing the glucose and that differs person to person. And so we're just entering this really fascinating realm of having the ability to do personalized nutrition. But um, I do think it's important now because the biggest, the biggest crisis we're facing in healthcare right now is metabolic dysfunction, is blood sugar dysregulation. Like we talked about before, this is affecting um, you know, nine of the 10 leading causes of the death in the U S and 40% of Americans have prediabetes or diabetes. And again, 72% of the country is overweight or obese. So it's, this is not just recreational at this point. Like this is something that having awareness about this and, and thinking about it in, in our own bodies is, is yeah, certainly not like something that's kind of a biohacker hobby. It's, this is something that we all need to be thinking about. Absolutely. And I think, you know, to your point around considering the microbiome, there's so many things that will influence the composition. You and I, so for example, uh, you know, I'll give you an example of, I used to, you know, eat cashews, like pop them like candy, absolutely love them. You know, of course had the, had the CGM and my body literally responded like I was having candy. Like wow. I, my glucose went berserk and I would have never known that I would have never known that. I, I mean, I love, I was, I just, you know, I still absolutely adore cashews, but now, you know, I might have Brazil nuts instead. And that's actually what I have because I have a much more reasonable response <laughs> to having Brazil nuts than I do to cashews. And you would say, oh, they're just both nuts and whatever, but for whatever reason, you know, the substrate, so you can, you know, you're, you're talking about this, like glycemic index, like the substrate is going to be the same for all people, which I think is an oversight because we also have to consider, you know, our hormones. You were talking about insulin. There's many hormones that would go into under the category of hormones, our enzymatic degradation, like how quickly the thing moves along. And then you said microbiome, which I think is also uh, an incredibly uh, useful, uh, you know, addition to that, to what might be the difference between me having cashews and you having cashews, for example, right? Yeah, exactly. And not to mention that, I mean, then you can add the additional layer of complexity of, did I sleep well last night? Right. You know, like we know that if you have a poor night's sleep, you are going to be more insulin resistant the day after you've had a poor night of sleep compared to a night you've had good sleep. Like this insulin resistance concept that we've been talking about just for the listeners, like it's not just something that happens like a progressive march over time. It also can sort of switch up acutely. If you exercise, you're acutely more insulin resistant. If you lose sleep, you're acutely more insulin resistant. If you're stressed, that can promote um, cortisol, which pushes glucose out into the bloodstream. So these other factors like 
are you eating cashews when you're sleep deprived, stressed and <laughs> right. haven't worked out right. versus well slept, worked out and not stressed? It actually can be a profoundly different response. I found that piece to be really fascinating. So, um, and that's really what my company levels builds is that software layer that helps people put that all together because it's not, unfortunately, it'd be, it'd be bit simpler if it were just about the food, but it's actually, there's other factors involved as well. And so in that sense, glucose becomes this really beautiful sort of centralizing force around a lot of the lifestyle factors. I think a lot of us are working on stress, sleep, exercise, food, et cetera, uh, microbiome and become something that's like the readout for a lot of those different inputs. So, yeah. 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 Well said. And I, you know, I wish I had a CGM when I was studying for my boards. Cause like, that's like the perfect storm of metabolic disease. It's like no sleep. You're stressed out of your mind. You're like, I have been in school for four years. If I do not pass this, like this <laughs> is a big problem. So you're under crazy stress. And I was popping cashews, like nobody's business. Cause that was like the, my quick little snack that I could have in between whatever. So yeah, uh, let's talk a little bit about, um, some of the other, so we've been talking about these influences on glucose. One of the things that I've, I've heard you talk about, and I, in innately learned this with my children was the, um, nutrient timing of things. So I'll, I used to, when I, you know, it's time for my kid's meal, I would put like the chicken and I'd put the potatoes and I'd put the whatever, and then I would give them the food. And of course my kids just ate the potatoes and then they filled up and they were like, we're full mommy. We don't want any more food. So what I started doing was giving them their chicken first. And then once they finished the chicken, then if they're still hungry, then I give them, you know, the carb piece. And I've heard you talk about this in the context of glucose regulation. I'd love for you to expand on nutrient intake and nutrient timing as a, as something that can, you know, positively or negatively affect your glucose response to your meal. Definitely. And that's so fascinating about your kids. Like that tiny switch up probably had a really big impact on their response to the food. And and this really gets down to this concept of food sequencing. So this has been well studied. Um, basically, if you eat the carbohydrate first in the meal, you're going to have a higher glucose response to that meal compared if, to if you eat that carbohydrate last in the meal and actually front load with um, fat, protein, or vegetables. So, so those are some of the things that have been studied. Um, there's actually one study where they gave people chicken and vegetables before a bread. I believe it was like, um, a couple pieces of like focaccia bread or something. And then they switched it. They gave the bread and then the chicken and the vegetables and had a completely different glucose response, much better when the chicken and the vegetables were given first. There's also been studies looking at like a handful of almonds before a meal, which is kind of like a fat and protein and studies looking at eggs before a carbohydrate rich meal. All of them show the same thing. If you basically eat the bready pasta thing second and put these sort of blunting foods beforehand, it's better for your overall glycemic response. This could have a lot of different reasons why, um, you know, it slows GI transit, um, it kind of slows the absorption of the carbohydrates because you've got all this other roughage and fiber um, in the gut. Um, could be microbiome factors, could be hormonal factors. There's a number of reasons, but it's funny because if you walk into an Italian restaurant, you're getting the bread basket first. If you walk into a Mexican restaurant, you're getting the tortilla chips first. It's the opposite of what we should be doing. So, you know, definitely 
ask for the, if you want them, ask them to be brought after the salad course or something like that. Or so, guac, ask for the guac. Guac, <laughs> guac and vegetables. Guac. Yeah. yeah. That, I mean, that would honestly be the perfect thing to do is get guac and some veggies and have, and have that first. Um, the second piece aside from food sequencing, um, is food timing. So we tend to be more insulin sensitive earlier in the day and less insulin sensitive later in the day. So we probably want to front load our higher carbohydrate foods to earlier in the day when we can process them and take them up and produce less insulin in response to them. I mean, ultimately, hopefully this point has been made. We want to keep our insulin levels sort of down and more stable to kind of generate that metabolic flexibility, potentially generate that fat burning for weight loss that we want. So you can kind of get more bang for your buck by eating the carbohydrates earlier in the day when we're going to produce, have to produce like sort of less insulin and have less of this, you know, overcoming the relative insulin resistance of night. So, um, so I tend to eat really more, more of my carbohydrates earlier in the day and then taper almost to sort of keto by end of the day where my dinner is almost like a, a very little, you know, low carb meal, probably like below, 10 net carbs or something like that to just really kind of let my bottle body settle before bed. And cause I know that I'm just going to essentially be paying more for it if I eat it later at night. Um, and there has been actually studies on this too, where they give people standardized meals morning and night and see a totally different, um, uh, glucose response. And this kind of gets into the, the concept of why intermittent fasting and time restricted feeding can be very effective for some people for their metabolic or weight loss goals, because Ultimately, what is time-restricted feeding? It's putting your feeding window into a shorter period of time, usually earlier in the day, stopping eating, you know, three or four hours before bed potentially. And what that's doing is it's giving your body essentially an insulin rest. It's saying like, we're not putting exogenous carbohydrates or protein, which can also stimulate insulin into the body. Your body just doesn't need to produce this insulin for a longer period of time. We can move through the glucose in the body and then flip that switch into fat burning. And that sort of gets you to forces your body to become more metabolically flexible because you've kept the insulin down for a longer period of time. Um, and one, one piece of research that I loved was they took two groups of people and gave them the exact same number of calories in 24 hours. So no changes in the calories or food, same meals. One group ate between 8 a.m. and 2 p.m. One group ate the same amount of calories between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. So it was a six-hour feeding window or a 12-hour feeding window, one that ended a lot earlier in the day. And of course, despite eating the same amount in each group, the 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. window had much better metabolic parameters, 24-hour glucose levels, insulin levels, et cetera. So eating the same amount, no dieting, just changing the timing of the food to a shorter window, giving their body such a longer break of lower insulin. So I think there's a lot of easy tweaks we can do to just kind of get, yeah, get a better bang for our buck um, when we're, when we're eating the foods we enjoy. And this goes so much further and beyond, like this goes such a beautiful level, level, you know, deeper than calories in calories out. Cause we hear this ad nauseum. I think at this point, we, we are talking about, you know, in order to lose weight or in order to improve things, you know, we're often told calories in versus calories out. And I think that, um, when we now start to pay attention to timing and I used to practice, um, more of a, I would start eating at noon and then I w might finish eating at seven or eight. 
And I found just naturally, I actually prefer, I, you know, started working out in the morning. So, you know, tend, tended to have like a post-workout meal. So I've naturally just phase shift, shifted my food intake earlier in the day. So I, I kind of, I always joke, like I eat like my grandmother, like I start eating at like 10 and then I finish eating at about four. Like I finish four or five o'clock, like, you know, um, and I'm, and I'm fine. I sleep really well. And, um, so it's, it's an interesting concept for people because we're so often, you know, especially when fasting really started gaining in popularity and maybe this is a, and maybe this is maybe a two levels deep around, you know, sexual dimorphisms. But what I would often notice was people in the online space were men talking about, well, I, I fast until noon and then I'll, you know, eat until eight, you know, 12 to eight. And, you know, that's my eight hour eating window. And I remember, you know, I was like, I can do that. Like strong, like bull, I'm going to do the same thing. <laughs> You know, like I'm going to do the same kind of fasting thing, but it didn't really work for me. I was much more, I was starving by the time I got to 12, I felt like a lymph, like a mm. limp plant that hadn't been watered. So, um, yeah, just, Very. just an interesting thought to throw out at you. Definitely. Um, I'm very excited about a book that's coming out in September. Dr. Sarah Gottfried, who wrote like hormone cure, hormone reset diet. It's called women, food, and hormones. And it talks exactly about what you're talking about, which is the sexual dimorphism. Why might it work for men, but not for women? And I think it, a lot of it comes down to hormones and how the timing and the stressor that the body is signaled, um, by, you know, too much fasting or whatnot, um, how that can change our hormones. And so, um, yeah, really, really looking forward to it. I think it's going to break down, um, why keto works for some, like for men a lot of the time, but might not work for women, um, in the same way. So absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Amazing. So let, let's talk a little bit about stress. Cause I think, you know, we've been talking about how some foods like the nutrient timing and the composition of the diet, the way that we're, um, you know, eating our foods can impact glucose. I think that when we talk about stress, I think a lot of people think, oh, stress is this, you know, thing where, you know, you're red in the face and you're screaming and you're like, I can't take it anymore. But I, I think that stress is much more subtle and much more nuanced. You know, if I saw you on the street and I say, hey, hey, Casey, how are you doing? You know, your life could be unraveling like a ball of yarn. And you might say, I'm fine. How are you? <laughs> right. So, and, and I've noticed again with just coming, bringing this back to CGM, there's been times where my, um, like I've been podcasting for example, and I'll look at my glucose after the podcast and I can tell when there was, you know, I was asked a difficult question, you know, like I can literally see a glucose spike in, you know, in that, like, oh my God, they're asking like this really difficult question. This is going to take me like 10 minutes to break down or, you know, whatever it is. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the influence of stress, uh, and how that impacts our glucose as well. Yeah. So stress is, it's, so funny because it's sort of the body's best intentions for us to help us in a time of stress uh, by by raising our glucose. But in our modern world, that potentially adaptive response has totally gone awry. So it's like the body had really good intentions. It's not working for us anymore. So what I mean by that is that when we're stressed, we release stress hormones, catecholamine hormones, cortisol, et cetera. And those go to the liver and tell our liver, oh my gosh, there's a stressful thing. We're probably going to need to mobilize. This is a threat. We're probably going to run. Um, we're going to fight. We need energy and we need it now. And so it tells the liver to actually dump our stored glucose. It's stored in chains of glucose in the liver called glycogen, break it down, put it into the bloodstream, 
you know, feed the muscles, feed the, the brain, you know, get all this energy out there. So that would be great if we were being chased by a lion. It would be great if we were truly running away from something that was a threat. But those are no longer the threats we're facing in our modern world. We don't really have corporeal threats. These are our threats are psychological. They're constant and they're low grade. And the body has no idea that that's different than being chased by a lion. So we're still releasing the cortisol. We're still releasing the catecholamine hormones, even if it's a text message or an email or a podcast conversation or someone honking. Our body thinks we need fuel to run from that. And we don't. So what ends up happening when we end up sitting there with higher blood sugar levels than we need and no sink for it, we're not actually going to be using the muscles to pull that glucose out of the bloodstream. So it kind of sits there and causes problems, cause our insulin to go up. Um, it's just maladaptive at this point. So it's really a function of our, our stressors changing over time. And so this response no longer being useful and now being damaging for us. So, yeah, I mean, I think one of the most fascinating things about wearing a continuous glucose monitor for the last two years has been exactly what you talked about with like the podcasting. I can see when I'm giving a talk or something like that, my glucose literally goes up the minute the talks or maybe actually a few minutes beforehand, you know, cause you're nervous and then we'll go up just like a food related curve and come down. And what I've learned. And I, now that I wear also heart rate variability monitors, so heart rate variability is a measure, sort of an objective measure of stress. And, you know, the lower the heart rate variability is the more sort of a sign of a stress, stress in the body, the higher it is sort of the better, the adaptive stress response. I find that that HRV correlates with the glucose. So as the glucose goes up during stress, my HRV is dropping and vice versa. So what that's meant to me is that I have to, whether I subjectively perceive that stress or not, the interesting thing is sometimes I'll be doing a talk or a podcast or something, the glucose will go up, but I actually didn't feel stressed. I felt okay, but my body knew I was stressed, which I think is fascinating. And my HRV knew I was stressed. So to me, it's becoming this like way of me tuning into my body more and saying, doesn't really care how I feel. I need to do my deep diaphragmatic breath right now. I need to stimulate my vagus nerve to counteract that cortisol and tell my body that there's not a threat, no matter how I feel. And it makes a difference. And there's been, um, there's been research on breath work and glucose control with, with positive associations between breath work and glucose. And I, it's not surprising based on the physiology. So I think there's really neat opportunities to use what could seem like really mostly a personalized nutrition tool, a continuous glucose monitor to actually be a mindfulness biofeedback tool. Like it's, it's strange, but, um, but it makes sense based on what's happening in the body. I, I completely agree with you. And I, at the same, I do my two X breath. It's like, you know, I exhale twice as long as I inhale afterwards, or I do a little bit of yoga nidra or, you know, something to bring my parasympathetic activity up so that I'm kind of bringing down that catecholamine and that sympathetic um, cascade that you were referring to. So that, that, that's, um, and I love that, the, that there's been um, research looking at breath work and it's, and, and it's influ influence on glucose. Yeah. I wasn't aware of those. That's incredible. Uh I'll share some of those links with you for the, maybe for the speak, the notes. Um, yeah. but it's, yeah, it's fascinating. And, um, I highly recommend that people actually implement this before their meals too. like, um, taking a couple of those, those two X breaths, you know, whatever you want to do, box breathing, alternate nasal breathing, any deep breathing that's really stimulating the diaphragm do five before each meal. Because I think one of the big problems we're, we're seeing just nutritionally in our country is that we're eating on the go so much and we're not stopping and we're, we're starting our meals in a sympathetic nervous system 
you know, activated state. And so unfortunately that totally changes the way we digest food. Um, it, it, it messes with our GI motility. It tells our microbiome, literally our thoughts can change the way our microbiome act. And so if we can just take a couple deep breaths before meals, this has not been studied, but I believe that, uh, that, that probably would change postprandial, uh, glucose responses. Um, if we could just like really get into that parasympathetic state before we take our first bite. That's great. I love that. And let's touch on resistance training. And then I want to move into a couple of questions that I have for you on insulin. Um, one of the, you know, when I've, when I've, I often train fasted. So I will often maybe have a cup of espresso or something before just to kind of get, you know, get the engine going. But one of the things that I have found and, you know, intellectually, you know why it's happening, but you're, I'm just so in awe with the capacity of the body, but I'll be doing, you know, a relatively intense. I like to lift heavy weights. Um, you know, I, I like to do my aggressive work t- typically in the morning, usually to coincide with my cortisol. So, um, I, I, I like to do resistance training in the morning. And what I've noticed when I am wearing CGM is that my glucose goes up. And the first couple of times I noticed that I was like, gosh, that's so funny. And then you're like, oh my gosh, of co- like, of course there's gluconeogenesis. You're lifting heavy weights. You're activating these, you know, it's a circuit you're doing, you know, I'm activating type two muscle fibers and there's like an, you know, there's an aerobic component to it. Of course I'm going to need more glucose, but you know, and, and maybe you can expand on this maybe more intellectually than I'm, than I'm, um, um, you know, scrambling around for words, but I'm so in awe that the body knows what to do. Like I'm at a loss for words sometimes. Like I fumble to find the absolute intelligence that the body, like, you know, live, my liver knows right now that I need glucose. Like, I know that that sounds really dumb, but that's just how I feel. It's so beautiful. Yeah. It's so beautiful. And I love, I mean, I think that awe I mean, I'm with you hundred percent. I, I just like truly can't believe that the body knows how to do all this stuff all the time. And like, also that it's always trying to help us just like with the stress glucose response, like it's trying to help us. And unfortunately we're, we're, we're kind of not doing it any favors by like constantly letting ourselves be stressed all the time with the pings and the dings and the honks and the low, you know, all this stuff. So I, it's such an appreciation for what the body's trying to do. Even insulin resistance is the body trying to help us. Right. You know, it's trying to say, no, 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 there's too much. We can't fill the cells anymore. Like we need to block it. I mean, so I think when we think about the body, the way exactly how you're talking with that awe and reverence, how can we work with it? How can we actually this is what it comes down to choices. How can we give the body the conditions it needs to just, to just, you know, be functioning properly. And that's where our choices come in. So I'm with you hundred percent, but with the exercise piece, yeah, that physiology is so interesting. What you talked about with gluconeogenesis, creating new glucose from other substrates like protein. Um, But also it's interesting. That's the same stress response when you're lifting really heavy weights or when you're doing high intensity interval training. So like a above about 80% of your VO2 max or max heart rate, that is also a stress signal to the body. Um, and the same thing is happening with the stress response, cortisol, liver, dumping glucose. The difference is that in this situation, your muscles actually need the glucose. And the beautiful thing about muscle, it's one of the only organs in the body that doesn't need insulin to take up glucose. Muscle contraction in its own right takes up glucose independent of insulin. So you are stimulating insulin from the liver and then sucking it up into the muscles to be actually processed. That's a positive cycle. That's actually good for metabolic health. That's good for insulin sensitivity over time. And you're kind of clearing the liver tank. You're clearing this like short-term storage bank of energy 
which as you deplete that, your body's forced to then ultimately get into fat burning. Because once you run out of that quick storage of energy in the liver, we have a couple hours of the stored glucose in the liver. When you're using that in your super intense workout, we lower that tank, which means we're having to flip the switch into burning fat. That's metabolic flexibility. And because you're doing this workout fasted, it means your insulin's low, which means that we actually can switch into fat burning. So it's this beautiful opportunity. And um, I think that's why fasted workouts are getting more attention is because you're, it's exactly what we're talking about. You're, you're having to deplete the tank of stored glucose, switch into fat burning. And so therefore you're, you're not only getting physical fitness, but you're also getting uh, metabolic fitness and metabolic flexibility. So um, basically the, the take home with exercise and metabolic health is that contract your muscles as much as possible throughout the day, whatever that means to you. If it's walking two minutes every hour, if it's doing a resistance training where you're really lifting heavy things, if it's a jog, if it's any movement of the body is contracting muscles and that becomes a glucose sink. Um, what we know that resistance training is phenomenal for metabolic health because you're actually creating more muscle to be a glucose sink. It's like then at baseline, as you're just sitting that must, there's more muscle to burn through glucose. So that's really good. <clears throat> but if that's not something that people are interested in doing, I think it's worth mentioning that even like I, like I said earlier, walking two minutes every hour can be valuable for metabolic health. And there was a study that was done where they took different groups of people and each it was three groups and each group did a cumulative 60 minutes of walking per day. One group, it was three 20 minute chunks before meals. One group, it was three 20 minute chunks after meals. And then the other groups were two minutes every 30 minutes throughout the waking day. And the group that actually did best in terms of glucose levels over the course of the day was the two minutes walking every 30 minutes, even though all three groups watched 60 minutes. And I think the reason for that is because you're just more consistently throughout the day moving these large muscle groups. So it can be as simple as moving more frequently. You know, I, I'm not at my standing desk right now, but it's been an hour, you know, in six minutes, I haven't stood up and that's, you know, th that's ideally. And if I were really dialed in, I would set my timer for every 30 minutes and just walk for two minutes around the house. And that that's right. enough to have a, a meaningful difference. So yeah, those little movement snacks, right? So instead of going to yes. the fridge, right. For a snack, just like do a little lap around I love that. the house. I'm, I'm standing on my, um, walking, my walking treadmill right now, but I'm not on it for the audio for the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I love the walking treadmill as well. So let's move into insulin a little bit because we've been talking a lot about the glucose response, how food changes its sleep, resistance, training, stress, and I think it's worthwhile to, and we were talking a little bit about this in the pre-chat in terms of the relationship between glucose and insulin. So first, is there um, a diurnal pattern? So you've sort of alluded to this already, but is there a diurnal rhythm um, to insulin? So in other words, are there times of the day where we are more or less insulin or more insulin sensitive or um, more insulin insensitive? Yeah. So we tend to be more insulin sensitive towards the later parts of the day before, sorry, more insulin resistant towards the end of the day. And part of this may actually have to do with the hormone melatonin, which is released from our pineal gland to help us get ready for sleep. So melatonin is released as the sun goes down and, you know, helps prepare us for, for being tired. That may have an impact. The, the mechanisms aren't fully established, but may have an impact on pancreatic insulin release or insulin sensitivity in the body more broadly. But what we know is that, again, 
sort of, it's going to result in probably having a higher response to carbohydrates, um, later at night. Um, and so, so that's something to definitely keep in mind. And it's different between different people. I've seen people who wear a CGM and don't notice that carbs at night have a much, have a bigger impact on them. But for me, it's a hundred percent the case. If I eat popcorn at 9 PM versus 10 AM, it's going to be a very different thing. And it's going to screw up my sleep because I'm going to be bouncing up and down, uh, throughout the night. Um, and also because you're a little bit more insulin resistant at night, when you eat those carbs, they're going to stick around for longer in the bloodstream overnight. And you may have a bit more of that glycemic variability overnight as you kind of absorb it and, and bounce around. And that can be disruptive to sleep. We know that bounces like that ups and downs can cause arousal at night. We want to keep glucose more stable if we can overnight. So not just for glucose control, but also for sleep. Um, it's kind of important to, you know, not be eating right around bedtime. Right. And we know that when we're, when we have a CGM, so when we have this uh, continuous glucose monitor, we can measure our fasted glucose. We can understand what our mean glucose level is, the range post pre and postprandial, but it doesn't necessarily tell us our insulin levels. Right. So, uh, and I was, uh, I, I told you in the pre-chat, I wanted to ask you this, and I, I think that this would be a great time to kind of expand on it, but is there a way, um, you know, and the way that I sort of thought about this is, you know, algorithmically, is there a way for us to estimate, you know, average insulin in uh, someone who's a non-diabetic by looking over the course of the day at their glucose data points? Is that something that we can, um, that, you know, the technology algorithmically is, is in the works, or is that something that we can look forward to so that we can pair the glucose with the insulin? Yeah, it's, so this is really going to be ultimately, I think, the holy grail of the next phases of, of metabolic tracking. We can't right now, unfortunately, say, th- plug in your continuous glucose curve and say, this is probably what your insulin is. We can give you, you can sort of have a trend of what that might look like. And a lot of this research has come out of Stanford, Michael Schneider's lab, amazing work. He had a paper a couple of years ago called about glucotypes, patterns of glycemic variability. He took all these glucose curves, CGM curves from non-diabetic and pre-diabetic people. And I believe people who also had diabetes and then looked at how does that curve trend with insulin levels. And they did find a relationship between the more variability from low variability to moderate to high variability people in their glucose had a relationship with increased insulin levels. So that's kind of a, a general proxy, like the more spikiness that you have, the more your insulin levels are likely to be higher. And that kind of makes sense from a lot of the stuff um, we've talked about, but it's not a one-to-one relationship where you can just plug it in and say, this is what your insulin levels is. And part of that is because this fascinating thing about insulin, which is that, you know, as the insulin resistance process happens, where your cells are seeing too much glucose, they're trying to block that glucose from flowing in. So they become insulin resistant. The body, the pancreas produces more insulin to help drive that glucose in, like we talked about earlier. And that's when insulin is rising to overcompensate for the insulin resistance. That phase can make your glucose look normal or kind of, it can compensate effectively for years and years before you actually start seeing glucose rise in the blood. So you're just like, this pancreas is working so hard to basically get that glucose into the cells. And that's this window that we're missing in modern American healthcare because we're not testing insulin levels. And research has shown that 
we are probably having this hyperinsulinemia, this insulin resistance 13 years before our lab tests actually show a problem with glucose, like a fasting glucose change or an oral glucose tolerance test change. We're just totally missing that window. And that's where I think continuous glucose monitoring could emerge as a really cool tool to start predicting these patterns. Like, oh, my fasting glucose is still okay. It's still 85 but I have a lot of variability. So maybe I'm kind of moving along that spectrum and I'm, and, but my standard lab tests and the doctor aren't showing me. So it can be maybe a clue to, towards stuff starting to happen. And then ideally pairing that with a fasting insulin test could really give you more granular insight into where you stand on that metabolic spectrum. And just to make it really concrete for people, um, in case, in case that like lost anyone, you know, Dr. Stephanie and I could have both have a fasting glucose of 85 milligrams per deciliter. And so based on what the doctor sees, they'd say you guys are equally metabolically healthy, but that's could be completely false. I could be keeping my glucose at 85 by having a fasting insulin of 30 and she could be doing it with an insulin of two. So she would be much more metabolically healthy than me because her body's not having, to, that's just saying that she's not overcompensating. Her pancreas is not dealing with insulin resistance and having to over pump out that insulin. So you kind of have to put these tests together to get a better picture. But I do think that the more we research CGM variability patterns, how that relates to insulin levels, it may be able to be used as sort of this predictive marker as well. But long story short, the tests we're using now, like just fasting glucose, are not enough information and they're not catching people earlier early enough. So if you had, you know, if it was unicorn sparkles and rainbows and you had all of the biomarkers that you could with this one probe, you know, hmm. we've talked about what glucose, you know, the predictive value of glucose, when we look at the glycemic variability and what that might mean for, you know, different, uh, you know, cardio metabolic issues. Uh, you know, we've talked about Alzheimer's and cognitive dementia, all of that, but what would be, your ideal, if you could, you know, stick a probe in and get a readout, what would be your ideal future of what CGM, the current technology can do? And in addition to some of the things you'd like to see? Yeah, such a good question. And really I'd frame this as I'd want to understand what are the biomarkers that tell me about cellular dysfunction that underlies most disease. And um, you know, we, the diseases that we're facing right now, it's not actually really diabetes, obesity, heart disease, Alzheimer's, those are names for symptoms, but it's not actually talking about the cellular dysfunction that's happening. That's leading to those problems. Those cellular, dis that cellular dysfunction, those are things like inflammation, oxidative stress, insulin resistance, glycation, these subcellular pathologies that actually lead to all these upstream diseases. So I don't really want biomarkers about you know, the diseases I want biomarkers about the cellular physiology. So that's where that's, that's the framework that I'd use to understand this, this ideal probe that we're talking about. So from that lens, like, let's just work through them. I would want to really understand like food and how that's driving physiology. So that would definitely be glucose. I'd want, that is a huge step forward in terms of understanding how nutrition is affecting our body. But I'd also want to understand like glucose is not the end all be all for telling us about how nutrition is affecting us. It's very, very helpful. But as an example, you could eat straight fructose um, and that actually is not going to stimulate glucose levels to rise in the blood, but it has a lot of other problems. It can directly cause our liver to essentially turn sugar to fat and that can make us insulin resistance 
it's insulin resistant, even though it's not glucose. So I'd want something to monitor fructose and a biomarker for that would be something like uric acid. That's a byproduct of fructose metabolism. So, okay, got my sensor. We've got measuring glucose. I'd also want to be measuring uric acid. Um, you know, other markers of liver function, since the liver is really the heart of our metabolism in the body, things like monitoring liver function day to day would be important to me. Cause again, another example, like the fructose, if I were to drink straight vodka all day, my glucose would not rise, but I know I'd be causing horrible damage to my liver and my body. So having something to track sort of day-to-day -day liver function, that would be another one. And there's a lot more we could unpack with nutrition, but basically how do we, um, how do we create more granular insight about how, what we're putting in our mouth is affecting our body glucose, huge part of that puzzle, but there are other biomarkers we want to look at. Um, then let's think about inflammation. I would certainly want some sort of continuous inflammation monitor to understand how food and lifestyle factors are affecting my acute inflammation over time. Oxidative stress, another key sort of cellular pathology that's leading to uh, disease. Having something to measure that I think would be important. Um, so, so that's kind of how I would frame it. Like, how do we really know day to day how our choices are affecting our cellular biology so that we can make better choices? That's what I'd want that ideal future sensor to show. Yeah. I love that. And I, you know, to your point when, if there was a, if there was a way, like I think, okay, so a lot of, uh, a lot of patients that I've cared for, uh, over the years, they might present with more chronic burnout, chronic fatigue type syndromes. And when you really get down to that, it's like a, in, it's an insufficiency in the mitochondria, right? There's this purinergic s signaling where the mitochondria, this sort of cellular defense, um, process. And I, I wonder if there's, I mean, I'm sure there is, but or maybe the, the technology isn't there yet, but I'd love to be able to monitor mitochondrial health for everything that you just said, the oxidative stress, the systemic inflammation, um, and to be able to understand, you know, when the mitochondria are shutting down, because as you said, like the glucose, that is the substrate that creates the energy and in an aerobic capacity, it's done in the mitochondria. It's done in that electron transport chain. But if your mitochondria are like, we are under attack. We got to shut this puppy down. Your ATP production is going to be in the pisser. So right. I, I wonder if there's, you know, down the line, like to add to that sort of wish list, that load of unicorn sparkles and, right, and the rainbows right. list is like, like pure energy surging. Yeah. Yeah. By like mitochondrial biogenesis or something like right. that. I mean, certainly even understanding you know, proxies for mitochondrial health. Like if we can measure ketones, which is a product of fat burning plus glucose plus oxidative stress, like we can kind of get a gestalt about what's happening with the mitochondria. Um, mm. but, but potentially like further biomarkers down the road that can really help us understand like, what is our, what's our capacity right now to make new mitochondria? Are we making more? Are we, you know, how are they working? Um, I mean, that's the future. And I think, uh, I think it's a really, it's a very real possibility that these things are going to going to continue to emerge to give us this real time feedback. Um, and it's just, it's an exciting time to be alive with all this stuff. It really is. Yeah. So tell people where they can find information about levels if they're interested in CGM. And I'd also like you to plug your Instagram because it's so lovely to see how much great stuff you cook. You're such an inspiration to me. I'm like, Oh, I think I'm going to try those kale chips <laughs> that she made. Like, I like that. It looks like, so tell a little bit about, you know, where people can find you and then also uh, talk about levels as well. Sure. Yeah. So people can find me on Instagram at Dr. Casey's kitchen. So Dr. Casey's kitchen. Um, and I, yeah, I, I do love to cook and I'm mostly plant-based. And so I really love experimenting with like how plants can, can really optimize our metabolic health and how to be plant-based and not 
have glucose spikes really. That's like really one of my, one of my passions, um, uh, while still eating like beautiful whole clean foods and, and, and whatnot. Um, and then levels is at levels on Instagram and Twitter. And it's really fun to follow levels because people are all our beta customers are doing these amazing experiments. And you can really learn a lot about, I think everything we've been talking about just through how people are implementing this in their daily lives. And then I definitely recommend levelshealth.com slash blog, which is our just a wealth of information about metabolic health and how it relates to just the average person who's trying whatever you're, you might be interested, whether it's performance, athletics, weight loss, polycystic ovarian syndrome, whatever. We have an incredible body of, of research-based knowledge there. And a lot of the guests from your podcast have written articles on there, you know, David Perlmutter um, and others. And so it's, it's Ben Bickman. It's a great resource. Um, and then if you want to sign up for the wait list to get access to the continuous glucose monitor through levels, that's just at levelshealth.com. And then there's a wait list. And so we, um, we're moving through it, the wait list, but then you'll get access to our newsletter and, and be alerted when, um, when there's availability in the program. Well, I just want to tell you, uh, as we close off this conversation, what a pleasure it's been to chat with you. You know your stuff. It is so lovely to for you to be able to talk about the studies and how it's integrating into your research and how this is, you know, um, driving your decision making. And it's just been a pleasure. So thank you so much for accepting my invite to come on. And this has just been lovely for me. I hope you've enjoyed it as well. I've enjoyed it so much. Thank you so, so much for having me on this conversation. And it's just been such, such a thrill to connect with you. Thank you. Now, one of the things that I love most about doing the podcast is seeing the feedback and the impact that this podcast is having on your life. And let me say that I read every single review, the good, the bad, the ugly, and there are some that really strike the chords of my heart. And the one that I'm about to share with you is really about why I am doing this work. And this is from Betty Juliet uh, from the United States. And this is a recent review. She calls the review the good stuff. And she writes, I absolutely love being a Betty. I am 21 years old and she has taught me so much about myself. She's answered all the, she has all the answers and the juicy information that every woman should have. I wish Stephanie was around when I was in my teens. She empowers me every day and I'm forever changed because of this podcast and her book. Please never stop doing what you do. I strive to be as much of a Betty as you. Now, let me just tell you, I shared this. So Betty Juliet, thank you so much for leaving this review. This is why I do the podcast. It is for women like you, because I not only want to help the women who are in their thirties, in their forties, in their fifties, and in their sixties. And I want to empower these groups of women to break free of the shackles that we have um, all been given as a result of being a woman. But Juliet, you are 21 years old. And what that means to me is that I am also helping the women who are behind me. And that means so much to me. That is what I define as leaving a legacy. So thank you, Juliet, for listening at 21. Girl, you are so far ahead listening at 21. Um, than I ever was. So bravo, uh, brava uh, to you, my Betty. And thank you so much for supporting the podcast as well. So without further ado, my heart is full and we will see you later on this week for Geeky Magic and Betty Bites. 
I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's Geeky Magic Carpet Ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. 